After a lifetime of researching the dynamic and enigmatic world of light entertainment, I've decided to ditch my notebook and meet the people who inspire me. What makes them the people they are? How do they feel about the show business landscape in which they find themselves? And in a world where anyone can be a star, is there still a need for performers who have universal appeal? Come with me on a journey of discovery as I get a unique insight into Britain's favourite stars with a little help from my glamorous assistants. Yeah, well, I say glamorous, more like hazardous. And of course, we'll have a bit of fun along the way. The London 2012 Paralympic Games was heralded by the British media as the rise of the superhumans. However, Cardiff-born Tanny Gray-Thompson flew the flag for Great British Sport at four consecutive games, first winning bronze at the 1988 Olympics in Seoul. Four more Olympics followed where Tanny was able to collect a career total of 16 medals and in Barcelona became the first woman to break the 60-second barrier for the 400 metres. After retirement from competitive sport, Tanny became invested into the House of Lords and now tackles issues facing disabled people in 21st century Britain. I caught up with Tanny to talk sport, disability and being a baroness. Ladies and gentlemen, Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson. So, let's go back to the very beginning. You mm. were born in Cardiff during the very end of the 60s. Yes. After a long battle with the local authority, you attended a mainstream school, something that Josh can relate to. Looking back, how did this shape your determination for your life and career? Being in mainstream school was so important because um, I... I, I didn't think of myself as being particularly disabled in the way other people saw me as being disabled. So yeah, I, I couldn't walk and I, was, I couldn't do stairs and there's lots of things I couldn't do, but I don't feel that I had too much negativity around me. Um, and so I, I got paralysed at seven-ish. Um, my spine collapsed and, and paralysed me. And um, I think there were people around my parents who told them about all the things I'd never do because I was in a chair. But they just, my parents just ignored it. So I was lucky because I stayed in the mainstream junior school I was in, but the big fight came when I was 11. And um, basically my dad threatened to sue the Secretary of State for Wales over my right to be educated in the mainstream school. And I think the thing it gave me was, was, was education, actually, because we'd, we'd gone to look at a special school, but the children there, they, they weren't being educated. They were being kept busy. And I remember going into one class and there were children at like 15 playing with sand and water and my dad was like well if you think that's what you're going to do <laughs> you know you're having a laugh because you know I didn't need special ed I needed an accessible school and I guess the the other side I saw the, the mainstream school I ended up in I saw lots of children who were technically non-disabled but needed different or special ed and they didn't get it because they weren't perceived to have a disability so um, I think for me it, it just made a, a massive difference confidence education um, and and just being able to do the things that I wanted to do. And at age 13, you realised that wheelchair racing was something you were passionate about. Did you ever think that you would be as successful as you later became? Uh, I wanted to be successful, but I didn't think I would be, But because uh, I, I played lots of sports, but wasn't very good at them. Um, and it was my dad, really, that encouraged me to be active. And it wasn't about Paralympic Pathway or GB stuff. It was about being fit and healthy. And if I had to go somewhere where there were loads of stairs, being fit enough to get out of my chair and crawl upstairs. And my dad wouldn't um, adapt our house at all, so we didn't have a lift or anything. So I used to crawl up and downstairs to bed. And, and and that was sort of good. So it was only 
after a couple of years of competing and playing lots of other sports that I thought that, you know, I was making improvements and I was going quicker and I was beating other people. Um, and I, I kind of started to, to realise that I, I might be able to make the GB team. But uh, I, I always put a lot of pressure on myself. I always wanted to win and be really good. But I kind of had about the first five years I competed, I didn't win anything because the best girl in Britain went to my school. It's really annoying. And so it, it taught me ways to go off and find a club and a coach and find ways to be better. So I think in the long term, not having success early on, success early on was really good for me because it meant I had to go and work hard. And those skills then helped. When I made a big jump when I was 17. And um, those skills made the difference. Uh, and I think if, you know, I hadn't have been a successful athlete, then I still would have, you know, I, I still am physically active now and I don't really get in my racing chair too much because it's just hard. But, you know, I still do lots of other things because I think being active is, is it, well, it's important for everybody. But I think, you know, if you're disabled, you to be able to transfer, get in and out of the car, pick my chair up, it's really important that I can do as many of those things as I can. So 1988, that was a setting for your first bronze medal in Seoul. The Paralympics in those days probably weren't as profiled as they are today. But how do you think your success helped Paralympic sport to gain exposure? Seoul was an amazing game because it was the first time they'd come back to having been in the same city as the Olympics. And we kind of joke because they sort of had, it was like rent a crowd. They had different local church groups and community groups coming in every day. And one day they'd be supporting Germany. Next day they'd be supporting us. Um, so you never knew quite who they were going to be supporting. Um, but the atmosphere was amazing. It was full stadiums and... Um, They'd actually built a different village for the teams because they didn't think that if disabled people had been known to live in the Olympic village that people would buy the flats and apartments afterwards. So they built a separate village. So they had lifts, but they had ramps down the outside of the building. So you used to go up in the lift and down the ramp. So I was on the 14th floor. So, I mean, that used to be a bit of a laugh. But um, but there was a bit of coverage, not a lot. But I think the big break came in 92 with Barcelona. And that's partly because the Olympic team did well. Journalists had had a nice time out there. They realised they could get another two weeks in the sun. Um, and there was a, a sports reporter called Helen Rollison, who was amazing. So she was the first woman to present grandstands. And there was a lot of discrimination against her doing that in the like, late 80s, early 90s, where people were writing to all their local papers saying, you know, how dare the BBC appoint a woman to present grandstand? What is the world coming to? You know, if we let women present grandstand, you know, it's, it's all going to end. And it's sort of funny looking back because it's not that long ago. But she, she'd come out and she was just really keen that she showed it a sport and nothing else. And if there was an interesting story, that got covered when you were doing interesting story stuff. But, you know, if when you were doing the sports, you know, competition, she just did it a sport. And, and so she had a massive impact. So I think Barcelona won four golds and silver. And so that helped in terms of my own profile. But I think... Um, having Helen so determined to cover it in a really straight sporting way was massively important. And I think one of the ways it's, you know, it's changed this, we, we've gone a little bit back, I think, to, to some of it being, aren't we all brave and marvellous? And it's, you know, some Paralympians have very dramatic, traumatic stories to become a Paralympian. Loads don't. Same with Olympians. And so I do worry in, you know, with my political hat on now and, you know, austerity and benefit cuts and all those things, we're, we're going back to, just occasionally being a bit patronising towards disabled people and disabled athletes. Um, and, and that's a bit of a shame, but we, we need to keep pushing on and just, just make sure that it's covered as sport and nothing else. 
mentioned Barcelona there in 1992. Um, that was the year you became the first woman to break the 60-second barrier for the 400 metres. Where does this stand in the hall of your personal achievements? Um. Breaking the minute barrier was, was really cool. I mean, probably nobody remembers or cares about it anymore. But for me, it was... There's a big thing when you see your time on the display board and it goes from one, uh, you know, dot, zero, whatever. And then it, it it's just much shorter. It's it's like a marathon. If you do 159.59, it's way quicker than two hours, even though it's only a second. Um, so I think just personally, it gave me loads of confidence and I knew I was pushing quick. And... Uh, it was quite exciting at the time, actually, to to know that, uh, and, and you know, even at that point, I knew I was going to get quicker and and better. Um, so it it was kind of an exciting time. I mean, actually, just Barcelona was an amazing games. You know, it was we had, you know, full stadium. They sold the tickets quite cheap, um, but people came to watch. I think now in sort of the history of the Paralympic movement, people tend to look at sort of Atlanta, Sydney, where the Athens, where the crowds weren't great, and they forget that Barcelona was a huge games. Um, and and that's a bit of a shame, really, because I think Barcelona's got a lot to be proud of in terms of what they did for the Paralympic movement. Five Paralympic Games with 11 golds, four silvers and one bronze mm. is some record. How do you quantify your own success? Uh, I struggle with it a bit sometimes in terms of success. So I, I don't really think about my sporting career much anymore because I've got a million other things I want to do. Um, it's nice because it gave me a platform and it's given me the opportunity to do lots and lots of other things. Um, but ultimately, sport is a little bit frivolous. You know, it's just... Um, it's a huge privilege to compete for GB and I, I'm really proud of the team around me and, and what I was able to do. But I, I think the stuff I do now is 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 more important. But I... I don't know, it gave me the platform to, to do the stuff that I do now. Um, I, I guess my husband was an athlete. You know, if there was one thing I could have done in my career was beat him, I never did that. So that that's my one regret in sport is I never beat him. And retiring from competitive sport, I imagine, is an extremely difficult decision to make. Um, you chose to call time on your remarkable career at the Athens Olympics in 2004. Why did you think that was the right time to bow out? Uh, I decided to stop because I'd had enough, really. I mean, it's, it's great. You know, you travel lots and you kind of got to spend a lot of time with your mates and a lot of it's fun, but, but a lot of it's really boring. You know, training is relentless and it's every day and it's very similar every day. Um, and I was starting to get a few sort of niggly injuries and I'd had a daughter by this point and decided that I um, I kind of wanted to spend more time with her and my family and... And I'd, I'd had enough of just everything that's that's involved in, in you know, mentally I was tired, actually, more than um, probably physically. And I, I knew I wanted to do other things. And so actually my, my final race ended up being in 2007 um, because I wanted to make absolutely sure. So I, I knew in Athens that I was done, that I wouldn't do another Paralympics. I wasn't quite sure, you know, how far I'd go. But I wanted to make sure that there was nothing left, that I was absolutely finished because you can't go back. Um, you know, I was 37 when I retired, so you, 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 you can't do it. You, you can't take a couple of months out and go back. You, I had to just know that I was calling time at the right point. Um, and it was good. I mean, I don't, I don't regret it because I don't think, I, I don't have any regrets about my career. You know, there's more races I'd like to have won, but, um, 
you know, I, I, I gave it the best shot I could while I was competing. So I think that also was useful in helping me find peace and move on and find other things to do in my life because my sporting career was, you know, was finished. And in 2010, you became invested into the House of Lords and you took up your official title as Baroness Grey Thompson of Eaglescliff in the county of Durham. Since then, you've become a tireless campaigner for disability rights. Two questions, really. Firstly, how does it feel to be a Baroness? And secondly, how significant is your role in bringing about equality into 21st century Britain? Uh, being a Baroness is its so hard to describe it. So, you know, kind of sitting in my office... Um, overlooking the back of Westminster Abbey. I mean, it's beautiful. At night time, when you're sitting looking for inspiration, you know, uh, you look at the lights and stuff, and it's, it's, it's a pretty cool place to be. But then there's also a weight of responsibility that comes with that. So I was always interested in disability rights and equality. And, you know, my, my dad told me when I was about 21 that he thought one day I should end up here. And I sort of laughed at him, I think. And I, I had a really lucky upbringing in terms of, you know, when parents were educated, they understood how education system worked. They fought for me not to experience discrimination. And my dad saying to me, you know, you're lucky. You know, really, and I was like, I oh, know I am. And he's like, you know, you need to kind of make sure that, or try to make sure that other people get some of the chances and opportunities that you've had. So that, that was always sort of in the, the back of my mind, really. And when I was competing, I, I think it's really difficult to have a very public view on, on disability rights because... Um, it's actually you know a lot of people don't like athletes having a view on anything they just want you to be good at sport so for me I, I kind of knew I had to get my career done and and um, then this this would be the, the second part of my career really um, and also I didn't meet a lot of disability rights campaigners so I remember the first article I read by Jane Campbell who sits in the House of Lords as well and about the social model and suddenly it was like wow it's not me then <laughs> you know and, and these things all just dropped into place at different points and you know the, the social model was this light bulb moment for me where it was like okay people you know if if there were no steps if the Daleks land and you know I'm made queen of the universe suddenly everything's okay well for me you know and and so they had these moments and so I kind of had to sort of be grown up and get to a point where I was done with athletics to move into to what I do now and um it's hard and you know because austerity and you know cutting budgets and sometimes the, the the privilege about being in the lords is the chamber listens to what you say they absolutely listen they, they don't always agree with you so um I, I think it's easy to forget actually that being listened to is is a start and you know i've won some votes i've lost some votes um what, what you have to do where sport is useful it teaches you to have resilience and keep going and keep having another go and finding a different way to, to have a go I, I guess that's what sport's given me in terms of being here is, is having some of that resilience but it can be really exciting in the chamber um, and you know sometimes you can absolutely cut the atmosphere with a knife you can just feel the tension in the chamber other times when you've been in for 12 hours and it's two o'clock in the morning and you're debating whether and or or should be in a sentence. It's it's less exciting, but um, I try just to use the time that I've got here to to either change legislation or shift opinion or just get people to listen. Because reality is, you know, life for disabled people. A lot of disabled people are still really hard. It's hard to get into education, uh, to physical activity. People are patronised. They're talked down to. Um, you know, public transport, taxis. You know. It's just this list. It's, there are a lot of things that are better, 
but but we're away off genuine integration and inclusion and um you know i i kind of want to bring about that change um you know what i'd love to do is go into a restaurant with my daughter um and they speak to me not her you know so the stuff like that happens she's 15 and you know we went out for dinner the other night and i went in and said oh table for three booked it thompson and they spoke to her and you go hello i'm here she's great because she's like she's this little rebel and um you know, she's kind of quite a cool disability rights campaigner in her own way. So she just said, I'm 15, I'm not allowed choice, and you need to speak to my mum. So she just like that. So um, I, I think we've kind of sort of, um, you know, she, she gets a lot of pressure because I'm disabled, because people treat her differently. So, you know, I, I kind of don't want other disabled parents to, to have to deal with that kind of thing, because that's, that's just not fair. If you could educate people on just one thing about disability, what would it be? a really hard question uh it's, it's just about you know understanding you know not just assuming that because you're a wheelchair user or whatever impairment is there's all these things that you can't do and it's probably the, the biggest bugbear i have is the day-to-day low-level discrimination because you know if someone very obviously discriminates against me you can report it you know, uh, I don't know, to to the organisation that person works for or, you know, hate crime, you know, can be reported to the police. Actually, there's not enough understanding about disability hate crime. That's something that I think we need need to do a lot more on. But it's just the day-to-day low-level stuff that that is tiring and frustrating. So, you know, you go into a shop and someone says, now put your money back in your purse so you don't lose it. And I was going to throw it on the floor. What do you think I was going to do? You know, Mm. just just that low-level stuff. Um, you know, turning up at a train station and uh, I, I rarely book assistance because I've got time. And it's like, have you booked? Well, like, you know I haven't booked because I come through this train station about four times a week and I haven't booked in the five years I've been coming through, so I'm not going to do it now. And it's, it's that kind of stuff that I think if we fix that, it means, and there's not one way to fix it, it means there's a load of stuff that's in place that actually disabled people have a, a better chance of, of being genuinely included. I, I wish I could give you a straight answer about the one thing that, that needs fixing, but sadly, it's just, it's, it's, it's lots and lots of, if, you know, I, I got just treated the same as my sister, um, and then that, that would be not a bad place to be. As a disabled person myself, I constantly feel the need to change others' perception of me in order to get them to treat me like everyone else. How do you think high-profile disabled people like yourself can help to raise the awareness that disabled people can function in a mainstream world? I'd love more high-profile disabled people to have an understanding of disability politics, but the reality is some are interested and some aren't, and, um, you know, that's that's hard. I think, you know, unfortunately, you know, disabled people do have a bit of responsibility to, um, you know, kind of speak out. And that's true for women, you know, women in business or black people that you know all the different segments of society if you've got a high profile you know you 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 have to try and sort of i think bring about some kind of change um the rallies have said not not everyone will want to do that but i think just showing people that you can be good at something is is important and the reality as well you know it's just like you know i might have been good at sport but i'm useless at cooking ironing you know you know just because i'm good at one thing doesn't mean to sound brilliant at everything and that's that's kind of Olympians are like that. You know, lots of people are like that. So I, I think it's just normalising um, attitude and, and behaviour. But the, the difficult bit, I think, around being 
a Paralympian is because it's, it's this snapshot in time and there's this an assumption that because one disabled person can do that, then every disabled person can do that. You know, we don't look at an Olympian and go just because this person can run a 5K in this time that everyone should do it. So that's, again, about the lack of understanding about disability or, you know, not, not every disabled person wants to be a Paralympian. You know, I've got a lot of friends who are disabled who hate sport. <laughs> but the assumption is because they're a mate of mine or they, you know, they're disabled, they should be an athlete. So that's the, the, some of the, the cultural change that we, we, we need as well. But we need just more disabled people in public life. You know, actually, the House of Lords has got quite a few disabled people. There's a couple in the Commons. But, you know, we need disabled people high up in the civil service, the police, the army. Um, you know, we need more disabled people on TV. You know, we need more different disabled people. You know, if you look at TV series from the States, uh, quite often there will be not necessarily a main character who's disabled, but there will be somebody who pushes through the background or somebody who walks a crutch. And, and um, TV programmes, you know, EastEnders have done it, Emma Dale's done it. Um, there's, there's others that have done it, you know, but... But we, we need to just have better representation, which we, we don't have at the moment. And and having a, you know, in, in something like soap, it's not having a disabled character where either the stereotypical thing is they're evil, you know, James Bond, or most of the villains are disabled in some way, um, or, you know, or the whole story being about their disability and impairment, because that's not real life either, you know. My, my disability plays such a small part in my daily life mm. that it's not making a, a big thing of that, you know. So, um, yeah, we just need more disabled people being seen. You know? But that's where it's changed. You know, when I was a kid, disabled people were locked away in institutions and you didn't see any, you didn't see disabled people out anywhere. So at least now you, you, you see more disabled people, which is good. Everyone's different. different. Yeah. They, they are. And, you know... I always think, you look, my sister's two years older than me, you look at like her together, you know, she's not disabled outwardly. She's got a few problems with hips and things, but people would always think that I'd be the difficult one to integrate into sport where actually it's the other way around. Or, you know, pe- people make these snap decisions about what someone looks like or what, how they dress or how they speak. Or, and, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's just... I think if you're disabled as well, then that just is another layer. I mean, sometimes generally people don't know what to say. I mean... Um, you know, they have a bit of panic and, you know, but, you know, this is not, you know, the 1940s where we just don't see disabled people out and about anymore. Or they pull reference to that someone that they also know that's in a wheelchair or... Oh, um, yeah, I know what it's like being in a wheelchair because I broke my foot once. Right, okay, well, yeah, you have a bit of an understanding, but no, you don't really. Or, um, yeah, (laughs) things like that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, or you know, it's it's like oh, I'm slightly more tolerant of this. Like, can you get done for drunk drunk driving in that? No, you know, you, um, do you need a license? No, and I suppose it's embarrassment. It's all sorts of things, but you know, it's it's not things I'd ever dream of saying to anyone else. So that's just a little bit. You you know, you have to have sort of fairly big shoulders, but but some of it is. I mean, last year. I was in Canary Wharf, and this woman asked me, did I need a hand? And I basically had a rucksack on the back of my chair, one on my shoulders, a bag on my knee, and I was talking on my phone uh, to, to my husband. So I was, I was struggling pushing. I was fine. And she said, do you want a hand? I said, no, I'm fine, thank you. So she went, oh, right, where do you want to go? And no, no, I'm fine. Thank you. And she started pushing me anyway. So I then had to pretend to go into this building, which I didn't want to go into to get rid of her. 
And then the security guard in there thought I was completely mad because I kind of went in, sort of saw she'd gone and went. And it's stuff like that, you know. Actually, listen to what I'm saying, you know. Listen to my heart. Actually, sometimes I do need help, you know. The nearest train station to where I live has got a massively steep ramp, which is quite hard for me to get up. And sometimes it makes a massive difference if someone can carry my bag for me. Brilliant. But, you know, don't don't help me when I don't want it. Because, um, you know, I just, I just can't imagine doing that to somebody in a different situation yeah you can just push somebody into a shop no maybe i should try it actually that'd, just, that'd be quite funny you just go really close behind <laughs> them and just keep <laughs> them in so they yeah. can't tell yeah. let me take you in <laughs> yeah maybe i need to be a bit patronizing back at times looking back on your career what would you say your proudest achievement is uh my proudest achievement if it's if it's one race it's winning the hundred in athens which is my weakest event and i've had a kind of a you know, uh, a few ups and downs going into Athens. So that that was probably one of my most technically perfect races I've, I've ever done. Um, in politics, it's hard to know because sometimes you win a vote, but it gets overturned when it goes back to the Commons, so you haven't really got anything. Or um, I, I think what I, I kind of hope it would be is, is, is actually, which is not in any way measurable, is, is just trying to change people's attitudes and get people to think differently about at least some some types of impairments but um I, I suppose you kind of always hope that my biggest achievement's still to come um yeah I, it it would be it, it would be around just sort of integration just what I, I i sit on the board of transport for london and what i've said about disabled people i want disabled people to have the same miserable experience of commuting as everybody else and the, the then commissioner kind of looked at me slightly shocked and then laughed and he got it straight away which is, you know, I want disabled people to be able to use all forms of public transport, be in work, go shopping, um, be in education, just just be part of society. So if, if we can shift that a little bit, oh, quite a lot, that, that would be a good thing to do. And uh, what's next for Baroness Tanya Gray-Thompson? What next? Well, we've got a lot of legislation coming towards us. Um, Brexit, that will be a gift that keeps giving. Um, I mean, whatever your sort of political standpoint on that, um, you know, I, I voted to remain because actually a lot of disability rights legislation and the pressure to have disability rights legislation came from Europe. You know, our, our legislation's fine. I, I don't think it's strong enough. Um, so I think there's there's a lot we have to do um, around making sure disabled people are protected and looked after. Uh, I don't doubt there'll be another some form of welfare reform bill. Um, you look at what's happening with um, personal independence payments, work capability assessment, you know, they're, they're in pretty poor shape. Uh, so I think there's, there's, you know, welfare's a never-ending um, piece of work in terms of, of making life better. You know, I, I don't want people claiming thousands of pounds of benefit if they're not entitled to it, but also I absolutely don't want people living in poverty and struggling and disabled people being almost institutionalised again because they haven't got the right support to get out and about. And um, my husband always says disability living allowance as it was then was, you know, it was buying disabled people's rights. The fact you've got it is because the world's not accessible and the world's not integrated. Um, It would be great to not need some parts of personal independence payment because that accessibility and that integration's there. You're always going to need some bits of it in terms of, you know, 
personal care and stuff like that. And it, but but at the minute, I, I just don't think it should all be such a nasty fight. We I lost a philosophical argument, which was about if we give disabled people money, what can they do with it to be better? And it's not necessarily about work, but it's volunteering. It's about just contributing to society. Sadly, that doesn't really fit into a nice form, tick box form. So um, I, I need to find a, a better way of articulating that argument about how we, we support disabled people, because they do have additional costs, but we're a rich society, um, and it's how we can support them to get out and about and do the stuff they want to do. Okay, that's fantastic. A big thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you like this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates of forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time for another Beyond the Title interview.